Folks, welcome to the Hemonk Pulse, the podcast that talks about everything hematology, where you actually put your fingers on the pulse of hematology day in and day out. This podcast is brought to you by Blood Cancers Today and the Society of Oncology and Hematology. And I am your host, Dr. Shadi Nabhan, a hematologist and a medical oncologist. And I usually host guests that are experts in all things hematology. And we'll bring you data as well as information on things that hopefully will help you as you see patients with these diseases. Today's podcast is about acute myeloid leukemia. I host Dr. Amir Zedan from Yale University. He's an associate professor there. He's an expert in acute myeloid leukemia and myelodysplastic syndromes. Today's podcast talks about how we approach patients with acute myeloid leukemia. The field has gotten complex. There are a lot of treatments, lots of approaches, and many patients probably are being treated in community practices and in the real world, as opposed to being in high academic centers and universities. With that, I think understanding the best approach to these patients is critical, when to refer, when not to refer, and how do we actually approach a patient who is younger presenting with acute myeloid leukemia versus an older individual presenting with acute myeloid leukemia. Without further ado, Dr. Amir Zaydan, Associate Professor of Medicine at Yale University, talking acute myeloid leukemia. A little bit about you. We're going to talk a lot of things about acute myeloid leukemia today. Yeah, thank you so much, Adi, for inviting me to this uh, very exciting podcast. And uh, podcast, and I've been following it on 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 Twitter, and I see that it is getting a lot of traction. I think it's um, certainly providing additional context to many of the busy clinicians, in particular. So I am an, an associate professor of medicine at Yale University. I also direct the early therapy program as well as uh, uh, continuous medical education and uh, leukemia uh, disease aligned research team and uh, i focus clinically as well as in my research on mds and acute myeloid leukemia myeloid malignancies uh, which have been actually seeing quite a bit of change over the last few years so i think your uh, discussion is certainly very timely now, we're going to talk about AML. We're going to talk about acute myeloid leukemia, but just maybe in a minute or two, at least when I was a fellow and a resident, the definition of acute myeloid leukemia was so heavily dependent on the percent of myeloblasts that you see on the bone marrow or even the peripheral blood. Any changes into how you guys decide if somebody has AML versus MDS, or is that kind of the same still? It's... Actually, a very good question because certainly the definitions have been shifting a little bit. I think the overall focus from different classifications is uh, putting more weight on genetic landscape of the leukemia rather than just morphology. So as you were saying, morphology used to be the most important factor. If you have more than 20% blast, um, you are called acute myeloid uh, leukemia, except if you have certain uh, translocations by uh, fish or karyotype called core binding factor leukemias, which are uh, inversion 16 or translocation 821 or clearly acute promyositic leukemia 1517. However, in the newest classifications that were issued by the WHO and uh, international consensus classification, that list of translocations have gotten much longer. There's a lot of translocations. Many of them are quite rare that if you have them, you would be classified as acute myeloid leukemia regardless of how many plasts you have. And in addition to that, a number of mutations were also added to the list 
for example, MPM1 mutation. So now if you have MPM1 mutation, uh, even if you have 7% plus, let's say, um, according to the classifications, and there is some difference between um, between the ICC and the WHO. If you have less than 10% plus, uh, the WHO would still call you acute myeloid leukemia if you have MPM1. In the ICC, you have to have more than 10% plus, even if you had the MPM1 mutation. So I think it's uh, it's getting a little bit too tricky uh, in all honesty uh, for especially for people who are not um, you know too deep into these uh, classification issues but the overall trend is to think about uh, genetics and that has a number of downstream uh, consequences that are important uh, in clinical practice but in general like this like when you say 10% or 11% it's kind of i mean you guys just like flip a coin and decide 10% versus 9% I like the idea of the genetics, uh, Amir, because I think it takes away the arbitrary selection of percent of blast. It goes to the biology of disease. I'm curious when people say 10%, I mean, if I send it to a pathologist, uh, a different institution, they well, it's 12%, and the other pathologist says 9%. Is there kind of consistency between how pathologists or hematopathologists are quantifying the number of blasts? No, you. I think you hit the nail on the head, as they say. I mean, the, the issue, part of the issue is that there was a lot of blurred, blurred boundaries in the PLAS count, and different pathologists can read it differently. So this inter-observer uh, consistency has been always um, an issue. And the PLAS count actually has shifted, like, you know, many years ago, it used to be 30% that separated MDS from AML, and then the WHO made it 20%. Now the ICC uh, is pushing 10%, uh, between 10 and 19%, they are calling it MDS slash AML. So that's uh, the new entity, if you don't have any of those genetically defined uh, leukemias. So like you, I'm supportive of the genetic changes, but I think uh, the main concerns in my mind are uh, twofold. One of them is that several of those genetic alterations can take weeks to come back, depending on where you practice, how do you send them. And it's really tough to have a patient in front of you. And if you give them a diagnosis, that diagnosis might change two, three weeks later. And we try to tell patients that these conditions or you know myeloid malignancies happen on a spectrum. And sometimes it's very difficult to put it in one particular pot that this is what you have. But still, it can create anxiety, especially that many patients now have direct access to the path report. They can even see it before we do. We see it. And if the diagnosis changes, um, the patient will get anxious. I think the second area where I'm a little bit um, somewhat concerned about the increased impact of genetic uh, in uh, genetics in classifications is um, uh, resource-limited countries where many of those genetic alterations are not going to be sent. And how is that going to affect our ability to do clinical research there and compare their you know, epidemiology and other type of registry findings to our findings. So overall, I am very supportive, but we have to think about ways that can make this faster to come by and also more accessible across the world. So I'm gonna, I'm not going to go into the controversy of definition. We're going to assume the diagnosis is confirmed. The patient has acute myeloid leukemia. And the way I want to approach it uh, for a newly diagnosed patient is um, a 45-year-old uh, person walks into your office versus a 75-year-old uh, person walks in your office. Let's start with a, you know, a 45-year-old. Obviously, this will be considered a younger patient who walks into your office with acute myeloid leukemia. How are you going to approach uh, the uh, this patient, and uh, in terms of what you're going to do for him or her? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And I think just linking to our earlier discussion, this is why I don't think clinically for us, it, it had always been a big problem. How do you define the cutoff of the PLAS count? Because if I have a patient like the one you described, 45-year-old with uh, no past history of, of uh, myeloid problems and comes, even if the PLAS count was 17% or 18%, I'm not stuck on the 20% in terms of how I treat the patient. So these are situations where I could treat a patient with less than 20% plus as acute leukemia. And by the same token, an older person, even if they have 21% plus, they might be treated in, with lower intensity approaches. So historically, the main approach is to decide whether your patient is intensive chemo candidate or not. Are they fit enough to get strong chemo? Your goal with acute myeloid leukemia in a younger patient generally is cure. And cure can be achieved either by intensive chemo by itself uh, but that's in a minority of patients. In most patients, it would need bone marrow transplantation as a consolidation strategy. Now, how do you decide on this depends on the initial genetics of the patient. And that not only includes the fish and the karyotype, but also includes the increasing number of molecular alterations we were talking about. So there are a number of classification schema that, uh, or sorry, number of prognostic schema that are used. Probably the most common used ones are the ELN or the NCCN guidelines, and that will put you on three pots. Either you are favorable risk, intermediate, or adverse risk. Now, favorable risk is a term I don't personally like much because still around 40% of patients would die from their AML. So it's not it's favorable in the sense that it's relatively better outcome than the adverse risk. The adverse risk is the biggest challenge because most of those patients are going to die from their leukemia even with transplant. Long-term survival is generally in the order of 10 to 20% at most. And then the biggest spot is the intermediate risk. And the patient would fall into one of these depending on their cytogenetics. For example, favorable risk, we would give intensive chemo 7 plus 3 if they have core binding factor leukemia. Many, uh, I would say the standard of care is to add gemtuzumab ozogamycin. This is an antibody drug conjugate against CD33, which is expressed in most AML cells. And um, this antibody is uh, attached to calishamycin, a chemotherapy. So I think of it as a targeted way of delivering chemotherapy. And with that approach, you generally don't need to go to transplant. You would give the patient 7 plus 3 with gemtuzumab and then give them consolidation. And generally, many of those patients are cured. Not all of them, but many are. And importantly, um, we also introduced the concept of majorable residual disease or minimal residual disease, MRD assessment. So you want to make sure that your patient marker for the disease is gone. In the adverse risk, you are trying to get the patient to transplant. And we can talk more about this because this is where the biological fitness is starting to get blurred. Now we think also about what we call genetic or biologic fitness, meaning that not every young person who has acute myeloid leukemia should get intensive chemo. Those who have very bad complex karyotype or TB53, sometimes we consider them for alternative strategies. And then you have in your intermediate risk group where generally you are gonna need to go to transplant from the first remission. So you are giving the intensive chemo and then depending on the genetic alterations, you could add something else. For example, if you have a FLT3 mutation, this is 35% of patients with AML. If you have a FLT3 mutation, you would be adding midostorin to 7 plus 3, but generally you would still try to go to get the patient to transplant because this is the best outcome for a younger patient with a FLT3 positive AML. And similarly, in, 
in in terms of um, the transplant itself, there are of course a number of factors that play in um, beside the fitness. But you have to have adequate social support for the patient. You have to be able to identify a donor. Sometimes the insurance can be a problem. So sometimes you are stuck with situations where you ideally want to transplant the patient, but you can't. And then you do your best give consolidation chemotherapy and then hope for the best. Okay, I'm going to get back a little bit to the MRD thing that you mentioned. I'm not going to let that slide easily. But uh, I want to go first to the um, older individual, 75-year-old comes into your office. How do you assess that? Yeah, I think similarly, you are looking at uh, biologically, uh, how is that, uh, or physiologically, how is that person looking? Because you have 75-year-old who is in pretty good shape, who still goes up and down stairs, walks, a couple, you know, 10 miles a day. That's a minority, but we still see these patients. And then you have your more typical 75 who's sometimes in a wheelchair, uh, a lot of comorbidities, etc. So that's your typical patient who's older. Assuming that the patient has significant comorbidities, generally cure is not something on the table. So your goal here becomes more palliative. You are trying to extend the survival, keep the patient out of the hospital as much as possible, reduce the complications of leukemia in the sense of needing regular transfusions or admissions for neutropenic fevers, etc. And the approach to this generally has evolved uh, with the introduction of venetoclax. It used to be hypomethylating agents only, azacitidine or decitabine. However, that gave you a median overall survival of close to 9 to 10 months. It's generally less than a year. The introduction of venetoclax has been shown in randomized trials to extend the survival on average to uh, 15 months of median overall survival. So I would say that's the most common approach. However, uh, similar to the younger patients, the genetic profile of the patient can affect the initial management. For example, if you have IDH1 or IDH2 mutations, you could consider adding an IDH inhibitor to the HMA, to the hypomethylating agent, rather than um, doing ASAVEN. We have um, last year just uh, an important publication called the Agile Study, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, where people were randomized to receive either azacitidine alone or azacitidine with ibocidin, which is an oral IDH1 inhibitor. Of course, the patient had to have an IDH1 mutation for that. And the median overall survival with this approach was much better with the combination, and the FDA has approved this combination. So that's another potential uh, treatment you can give to a newly diagnosed older patient with AML who, who has an IDH1 um, mutation. But assume assume you've got the younger patient who has the IDH1 mutation. That will fall into, because in the younger patient, there's favorable risk. I would do 7 and 3 plus the uh, myelotard, uh, right? And then uh, the higher risk we talked about, the immune risk. But, but the younger folks could have the IDH1 mutation. For these ones... I guess, when do you use hypomethylating agents and venetoclax or IDH1 uh, target therapies in the younger patient? Or is it always you're going to go with the 7 and 3 if there's a fit patient? No, this is actually a very important question. And a lot of the uh, clinical research, of course, are focusing on this patient population. Patients who have IDH1 and IDH2 who are younger, the standard of care is still 7 plus 3. We do not give these patients HMA. The reason for this is that we don't think we can cure people by giving HMA with, uh, I, you know, with an IDH inhibitor. And your goal generally in a younger person is to try to cure the patient. So generally the approach is seven plus three. Um, and if needed, 
based on the risk profile to go to transplant. Yeah, can you now add? Are, can you can you add an IDH one targeted therapy to the seven and three, or this has not been studied? If you have an no, it has been studied. Actually, this is a very good question. It has been studied, but the studies that have been published so far are single arm phase two studies. So. Both of those IDH inhibitors were added to 7 plus 3. It looks promising. Um, there is a large randomized study that's happening in Europe, which will provide definitive answer on this. But I would say the standard approach in the U.S. is not to add an IDH inhibitor to 7 plus 3 at this time. This might change in the near future, depending on the results of the randomized um, studies. Now, you asked about the younger patient who I would choose for an HMA-based approach, in particular HMA with uh, with venetoclax. And that would be the patients who tend to do the worst, which are the ones who have complex karyotype, especially if they have TP53 mutation. So a younger patient who's fit for chemotherapy with complex karyotype and TP53, you cannot cure these patients generally with intensive chemotherapy. Your goal is to try to get them to transplant. And to get someone to transplant, you generally want to try to minimize hitting them very hard with myelosuppressive therapy that can cause fungal infections or cardiac toxicity or other things that might derail your transplant. So the genetics trump the age, pretty much. A couple of things, just a couple of questions. You talked about transplant. Lots of data on you can transplant older people, you can do all of that stuff. So um, is there an age cutoff right now for you guys where you say high risk, but you're too old for transplant, uh, but because you do non-myeloablative, you do match on related donor, is there an age or no? So I would say there is no like specified age limit, but it depends on the experience of the center and the, their level of comfort. So uh, in smaller centers, um, you know, the, the age cutoff could be uh, mid 60s to late uh, 60s. In bigger centers, I would say it's somewhere in the 70s. So for us, for example, it's somewhere in the range of 75, although we have on occasion done someone as old as 78, but in, those are extremely highly selected patients who happen to be physiologically looking much better. And as you mentioned, we do uh, reduced intensity uh, chemotherapy as well as uh, uh, you know selecting donors who are either matched or haplo-identical donors. But I think the important message for our colleagues in the community is just not to automatically exclude someone just based on their age. I see this all the time with AML and MDS, where someone who's 69 being told that you are too old for transplant, and they give them some kind of treatment, and they relapse and progress, and they get sent to us at that point when the ship might have sailed on trying to get that patient to a curative transplant. So you should always think about it and uh, at least refer the patient to discuss it. My last question, and I'll let you go, although the last question honestly, I could do an entire podcast then, but we're going to try to succinctly talk about this. You mentioned in passing MRD, but nothing passes through me, as you know, Amir. <laughs> I can understand the value of MRD in the APL, the PMLRAR-alpha, where you have the transcript and you're looking at, at the chromosomes. In the non-acute promyelocytic leukemia, is this really for prime time? Are you guys just investigating it? If MRD positive, you 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 do transplant. MRD negative, you don't. Like what? How are you? If there's a general oncologist calling you and telling you what to do with MRD, try to simplify how you'd approach it outside of a clinical trial, and then maybe briefly describe what trials are being done to try to uh, explain these issues. Yeah, I think this is, again, a fantastic question. As you mentioned, you could spend the whole hour talking about MRD. I think that 
the main messages is that MRD, most of the data we have on MRD as is in the context of intensive chemotherapy, not for older patients who are getting HMA then, although some of that data is, uh, is being um, generated. The second point is, as you mentioned, patients who have MRD positivity in general, whether they have received intensive chemo or lower intensity treatment, tend to do worse than the ones that do not have MRD. The problem and the question I think that is being investigated actively is that can you alter the natural history of those patients who are MRD positive by giving them either novel therapies or by sending them to transplant? And I have to say, unfortunately, the literature has been a little bit all over the place and suffered from lack of randomization of patients in that setting. So, for example, there is literature that patients who go to transplant with MRD-positive disease tend to have the worst outcomes. Uh, however, that can be modified. For example, there is retrospective data that if you use high-intensity or myeloablative transplant for someone who's MRD-positive, that might negate the impact, the negative prognostic impact of MRD negativity. But this data is still, again, retrospective. It's not randomized. And I think these questions are very important to be answered in the randomized setting. The biggest challenge, in my opinion, compared to APL that you mentioned and CML, you know, MRD is being measured in all hemalignancies, uh, and I think more standardized ways than it is in AML. APL, multiple myeloma even now, CLL, etc. In AML, we have two main methods, either flow cytometry or next-gen sequencing. And there are a number of issues with standardization and that what is the cutoff that you have to use um, in terms of how do you measure these assays. The most common way is flow cytometry, but some of the common uh, commonly used ones, for example, MPM1, that's one I think has a, the strongest data that uh, you could measure it every three months in someone who uh, has gone into remission, make sure they are negative. And if it shows up in the blood, it's likely that the patient will relapse very quickly after that. People who don't believe in MRD would argue that what's the difference? Like if you picked up the relapse at that point and the patient was going to have a morphologic relapse two, you know, two months later, are you really helping the patient by you know, picking up the relapse early? So I think we have to prove that also in randomized trials that if you intervene at the point in which MRD positivity appears, those patients would do better. Now, there are other uses of MRD aside from detection of relapse. For example, in the post-transplant setting, where many patients still unfortunately relapse. And those who have MRD positivity after transplant have a very high risk of relapse. So in those patients, we also could do something called preemptive treatment, meaning that they are still in morphologic remission, but because they have MRD positivity, you could start a FLT3 inhibitor if they have a FLT3 mutation, an IDH inhibitor, uh, HMA treatment. Um, but there is very little randomized data on any of this. I, I think um, until we have this data, it's going to be very difficult to give a clear statement to our colleagues in, in, in the general uh, community in terms of how to use it. I think the best summary is that the presence of it is bad. What to do with it, I think, is, a, is an open question. I leave you with a thought-provoking idea. I mean, I, I need to research this, but was there ever a randomized prospective control trial that evaluated MRD in APL and CML? I have to actually look at this, but for CML, I mean, historically, there has been extremely good data that uh, this, like if your PCR able starts going up, 
that you can put the patient back into uh yeah yeah but it wasn't randomized i don't think the reason i mentioned that i'd like i mean i hope that you guys think uh i presume you are i just uh i can't recall a prospective randomized control trial in apl where or cml where people who had elevation in the transcript that you are detecting were randomized to observation versus preemptive therapy I believe the field just thought we should do that. We should just treat, exactly. And CML, that's absolutely right. We certainly would uh, retreat the patient because we know 100% that the patient would relapse. Yeah. And then we know that we have active drugs. I think that's the other issue is that we don't really know in the context of someone, for example, becoming positive after transplant. Yeah. We treat them because we know they are going to be at very high risk of relapse and they are going to do poorly. But am I helping the patient by treating them early versus when they have the morphologic relapse. I think this is where the the, the the main question. I personally, similar to what we discussed initially at the classification, I think the field is going more and more toward genetic rather than morphologic classification. So in my opinion, and someone who has a new flit, like the flit tree disappeared and then post-transplant came back, that's uh, almost a certainty that it's gonna come back. Why would I wait? So I, I completely agree with your logic. But I think the issue is that without clear data on, you know, on a randomized setting, is gonna, it's gonna be always challenge as an expert yeah. opinion or, you know. No question, no question. I totally agree with you. And I also, I mean, it's just part of me. I'm thinking when I was seeing patients. I mean, the AML patients. It's so hard to predict how aggressive when they develop yeah. the actual disease. You know, and I know it could be pretty bad in terms of clinically, and and who knows what happens yeah. then. I have to Look, say our. Our European colleagues are actually much better at doing these than in the U.S. because we have, uh, I think, uh, much uh, easier access to many therapies. And um, they organize their trials, especially for difficult questions like this, I think, in a, in, in, a, in a better setting. And also because they can get central MRD assessment here. Many uh, in the U.S., many institutions, their own assessments. And it's very difficult to kind of do this in a central way for uh, big trials in the U.S. Dr. Amir Zidane, thank you so much for spending some time with me on the Hemang Pulse. Yeah, thank you so much. And I look forward to additional discussions on a lot of nice uh, evolving areas. <laughs>